so that's a shift, right? I started riding to the track and then I started winning. And the, the shift was just riding the track out of boredom, not realizing I'm actually... And that kind of became my thing, not realizing I'm actually training, like getting stronger and faster. <laughs> I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'll introduce our guest, who is someone I admire and have honored to have on the show. His name is Dr. Jason Richardson. He's a world champion Pan Am Games gold medalist. While competing as a professional BMX athlete, Jason was able to graduate college and go on to earn both an MBA in global management and a doctorate in psychology. He works closely with high-performance teams, executives, and athletes, and he's also an on-air TV and broadcaster commentating at international events for his sport all over, staying true to his passion. His career transitions and experiences in competition and businesses are the foundation and proof for his championship life. His ethos is winning in business, sport, and life. Jason knows that being a champion increases your true impact. This begins with growing your mindset and getting to work on your new path. How are you doing? And welcome to the show. Good. That sounds like um, quite the uh, quite the journey. <laughs> well, you lived it, and I'd love to share that journey with everybody else that is either they know you or they're just getting to know you. Uh, you started out as a writer. I want to take everybody through starting there and just talk about your shift there. I'm going to dive right in and talk about what was one shift in your career starting as a writer that you think changed maybe your life. Uh, you didn't re- maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but it was a big shift and or a small shift that created ripples in throughout the rest of your life. Mm, good question. And I, I kind of knew we would be talking about shifts, but uh, when you say started as a rider, that's a trick question because I'm still a rider. And even before I was getting paid to ride, I was riding. So uh, I started racing at the age of five or six. Um, like before, literally the year the video killed the radio stars, the year I, st- <laughs> that, um, I started riding pretty much. Um, but I'd say... You know what? So here's here's a good I my name is Jason Ahmed Richardson. Okay? Jason Ahmed Richardson. First name very American. Second name not so much. So my mom's born in in Pakistan um and emigrated here. My parents met in Africa. Anyways, that's a whole different story. But um so my mom always preferred to call me by my middle name. My parents got divorced and and so when I was racing in New Jersey, I was going by my middle name. Okay. So, which was fine. I didn't, you know, it always sucked to kind of explain how to pronounce my middle name. But, but what happened was I started, so shift one, when it, you know, the weather broke, that's back east, right? And we couldn't race all year round. 
So I decided to start riding to the track um, just because I was bored and the track was like maybe five miles away. Uh, and then the first race of the year came and then I won. And that was new because I, I wasn't the guy who was winning in the family. My older brother was the winner for racing. Um, and then, so that's a shift, right? I started riding to the track and then I started winning. And the, the shift was just riding the track out of boredom, not realizing I'm actually... And that kind of became my thing. Not realizing I'm actually training, like getting stronger and faster. <laughs> I just showed up and just won. It's like, what did you do that? What? And I liked it. Um, so then I started saying, okay, well, I think I actually want to like do more of a state series and start racing nationals. My brother was already on the national circuit and sponsored as an, as an amateur. He had lived in Vegas at the time with my dad. So I was in New Jersey with my mom. So second shift. And I tell people, I, I became Jason Richardson. I became Jason Richardson. I'm still becoming Jason Richardson. But I became Jason Richardson because I would hear vaguely the announcer kind of like fumbling my name. Ahmed Richardson, you know, because it's just like, it's a foreign name. Um, and we're talking like 80s, right? So I'm thinking, I'm never going to get sponsored if they can't pronounce my name correctly. <laughs> so um, I decided to start racing with that name, Jason Richardson. So that that's a shift. Um, uh, and I didn't know anything about marketing or branding by then, but I knew that if no one could pronounce my name, it might be difficult for me to get a sponsor, right? Um, that's what I was thinking in my you know, 13, 12-year-old self. So I started racing by that name, and then, um, and then, yeah, I think I think the next shift was, I so I so I since moved to Vegas to live with my dad because I could race year round, and I, I just kind of needed to be with my dad um, as a young man, and uh, <laughs> I. So my dad said, I'm not going to support this unless you start training. And so I would kind of practice more often. But the next shift really came in high school because I thought I was going to have to quit racing to go to college and was very much expected to go to college in my family. So, um, so I turned, I literally turned pro just to say I turned pro just to kind of check the box. There's two levels of pro, um, just to check the box and say, yeah, I turned pro, and then and then kind of, and then I got to college. University. What does that mean to go pro? So when you turn pro, you literally just declare it. It's just a different mem- It's just a different license that you get. And then at the time, it was you turn pro and and you and you be, you go into this this lower level. It's like uh, baseball, how there's you know major and minor league. So you go, but instead of getting called up, you have to make a certain amount of money in a year's time, and then you bump up to the high to the high level you know, double A pro. Now they call it elite. Um, so, <laughs> so I just figured, ah, you know, cause you know, I don't know how much I'm going to race. And then anyway, so, so I got to college and, uh, so I turned pro just on a whim, not on a whim, but I, I had maxed out my amateur career for the most part, turned pro. So I'm re- technically I'm a pro in high school, but I'm not like taking it seriously. Um, just cause I'm just like, whatever, I'm going to graduate, then we'll go to school and then whatever. My parents said, you're going to get a job and go to school and like live a college life, the broke college life. Got to college <clears throat> and my sponsor says, well, we're only going to pay for five races. And no wonder because I was not taking it seriously before. And I did get a job 
and didn't show up to the first day of work because that job sucked. And I figured <laughs> I'd much rather race for money. Um, <clears throat> so I decided to keep racing. Um, I did lose my sponsor, but I did manage to make that amount of money or most of that amount of money um, in that five race span. So I don't know if there's a shift there, but the shift really happened was just the decision to to make this a real profession versus, you know, checking a box and just say, you know, just, just kind of, you know, it's like when you go to the Olympics or you go to the Pan Am Games, you go to the World Championships, it's like, yeah, I was there. But, it, you know, it's the difference between it's, it's when it be, it's when it becomes that it's not enough to just be there. Right. And you actually want to come home with some hardware. That's what happened with my pro career. It's like, it wasn't just enough to say I was pro. If I was going to say I was pro, I wanted to be that pro. So then, um, so then, yeah, I just, I, I went on a, I don't want to say a tear, but a mini tear after that decision was made. I bumped myself because I had 300 bucks left to make that amount, but I bumped myself up forcing my sponsor to pay for that fifth race as a, as a top pro, um, made all my main events, you know, made like a thousand bucks as opposed to like, you know, <laughs> and it was really good. I was like competitive. I was in, you know, I was in the, the, the sphere of, you know, all the guys I used to look up to when I raced and back in the day and seeing the magazines, like I was on the gate with them racing them. It was crazy. It was crazy. And some of those, and they were men, you know, cause I'm like 19 or 18 at the time. And I'm on the gate with, a 25 year old or 26 year old. But at the time it seemed like, Oh my gosh, these people are, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's like, if you look at the rookies now, right. In basketball and they're playing LeBron, it's like, when you see LeBron, who's like this full grown manly man. And then you see this like kid who's just out of, who's <laughs> just out of college. It's like, Oh my gosh. So I was that kid literally running scared around the track. So that was, there were several little shifts along the way that kind of, you know, how did you move from scared to confident to to that to that person that won at the Pan Am? Um, so it's interesting. I confidence comes and goes, in my opinion. I, I don't get me wrong. I like that. I like when it's there, but I always say confidence is not a prerequisite for success. Your belief, however, is right. So I always had a belief that that I could. Right. That it was. And, and even if I even if I doubted that I could, I always had a belief that it was possible. Right. Even for me. Right. Even even somehow, some way it, it, it just might happen. Right. So I think that little room, leaving that little bit of room for. For I don't say chance, but for for being the benefactor of good fortune. Um, allowed me to take advantages of certain openings that other people wouldn't notice had they given themselves just a very narrow window or narrow way to win. Does that make sense? And that's what I, I really do a lot of work with my clients on that because you know you you look at the data and you look at the times, you look at the training, you look at your you look at your <laughs> spreadsheet, you look at your pro forma, whatever it is, and it's like, oh but how, but how, but how, but how? Um and the truth is I there was there was no reason at the time that I could point to like, I was, you know, went going from scared to confident, but I just, I just knew that if I, if I turned pro like pro pro and did well, then, you know, think things would open up, but you know, another, another conversation happened to me. So this happened on spring break that same year. 
Daryl, man. Daryl. So Daryl was my roommate, and he is currently my friend. He's pretty much my kid's uncle, even though we're not related. He's that good of a friend. And Daryl raced at the time, and, and I remember we were on a spring break trip, and he's drunk. And so I'm driving home from Mexico, and he's just, you know. But in his drunk situation, he said... He said something like he he I don't know he just started talking about racing and he said something like, "Oh well, you're you're the one who's double A, right? Elite. You're the one that's going to be making all the money." And I hadn't really like raced yet. Like I, you know, I had like maybe one race under my belt, but it wasn't like I had this track record yet. I'm like, but it really stuck with me, and and I kind of. Basically, I, it resonated with me, not so much that like, from a, I, like pressures on me to perform, but it was almost like, oh my gosh, like, he's right. Like, like I'm kind of chosen. <laughs> like, out of this group, like, I'm, I'm the one, you know? And so I just kind of, I, I, I did take that on as a responsibility, right? And I wanted to honor that. Um, but yeah, when I first turned pro and I'm next to, you know, and so I'm six foot and I'm next to people who are taller than me and they have world championship titles and national titles and they're already making the money and they've been in the magazine covers and have signature products. And I'm like next on the gate, like, <laughs> you know, looking, looking to each side of me and both dudes are taller, both elbows are higher than me. So eight of us line on the gate. We're pretty close together. Um, I was running scared, but I think that fear you know, coupled with that belief, like I, I, I just, you know, fortunately was able to channel that. Um, and then, and then once I started to see kind of going back to like that first race I won back in New Jersey, it's like, wait, I can do this. Right. But not only can I do this, I like this, right. I want to be here. Right. And so then the, the, the fear turned into kind of a, an obligation right? To what, to my, to my ability, right? And so my expectation at minimum was like, get in the final, get in the final, get in the final, you know? Um, and that was, and that was also, that was just my gauge for how I did. And then every time I made finals as an elite pro, um, you know, that first year I was, the money I made, I would call the travel agent. Remember them? I would call the travel agent and pay to go to the next, you know, use that money to go to the next race and boom, 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 boom. So that, that entered that fear was really just energy that became confidence, right. And bolstered the belief that was already there. Right. So, um, was there nervousness? Was there doubt? Was there a bunch of mess ups? Was there chokes? Of course. Um, but you know, along the way, I mean, if you look at it as a stock, you know, the graph kept kind of going up over time. Um, and then I was able to race the world championships in 1994 and it was my first one I ever raced. And again, that belief was there cause I always felt like I could, I could win that. And I always wanted to win that. <clears throat> and I would see amateurs go and the people I raced and I just never had the opportunity to go. So as a pro, my first world championships as a pro, I, I made both. We raced two different bikes. One's a cruiser, one's a 20 inch anyways, getting into the weeds, but, um, I won. I won it, <laughs> um, which is funny because so the day I won the world championships was the day I lost the world championships and I made both finals, right? So I won the first final, which was on cruiser. 
which pretty much people don't race anymore. Um, or pros don't race anymore. Um, but all the, I mean, if you look at the list of the people in that final, it's like, well, they're all Olympic coaches now pretty much. <laughs> so, so there you go. But, um, but then I made the, you know, so, so I'm like world champion, but then I have to like come down to come up again to race the next world championship final. So it's just so funny. Like I remember the, on the final that I won at the world championships, I came out of the first turn and I literally, there's like just a flash of like, I'm winning the world championships. And then the next final came and you know, it was just so such a surreal thing because like I had already raced the final and won. And so like, I'm in another final, I'm like, okay, you know, so anyways, the, the gate goes, I'm late out of the gate and I'm coming out of the first turn, first turn going, damn, I'm losing the world championships. Um, but then you, that was 1994, but then you slow forward or fast forward to 2007 and the Pan Am games is there. And I tell people, it's like, I, I, I kind of don't know how I won the world championships in 1994, but I knew exactly how I won the world, I won the Pan Am games in 2007. Now, right? at, which, at which point during this process, I, and I know this only because we talk often, where is it that you, you broke something pretty severe and you maybe wouldn't have gone on to win one? Oh, of, where was that? Yeah. Well, you, 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 you said small shifts. That's a big shift. <laughs> so I broke my femur in 2006, February 4th, 2006. I broke my femur. Um, which is the big bone in your leg. So that takes an, um, an amazing amount of force to break it. And it um, wasn't just broken. It and went- it wasn't just broken, right? It wasn't just broken. It was shattered. So if you see, if you, if I posted the x-ray of it healing, but you can just see bone, splinter, 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 bone in my leg. Um, it, the bone even popped out of my leg. I could still feel the hole in my thigh. Like I could still feel that in my thigh where, where it popped out. Um, so yeah, so they took a big rod, um, went in through my, my right cheek, tack, 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 put the rod all the way down, screwed that in there and then screwed it, screwed it. Um, so screwed it in up top by my hip, screwed it in at the bottom by my, you know, kind of by my knee. And, uh, yeah, so I have I have hardware. I have like a sixty thousand dollar leg. Uh, do not get hurt. Do not get hurt out of network. <laughs> um, but I will say, if you do break a bone, do it in Oklahoma because there's a lot of rodeo um, rodeo things going on there, and they have very very capable um, orthos there. They're very used to seeing it. So, and and while you you, I know that that was a big shift because or a big big thing because it was devastating to potentially not racing again. There were, I would suspect small shifts to getting back. Yeah. So, right. So I immediately thought I was done because at that time in 2004, no, 2006, when it happened, 2006. So this is 12 years after I'd won world champions. So this is, I'd had a long career already. Um, and I was already third in my thirties. Uh, 32. So it was pretty much like, okay, it was a good run. It was bound to happen. But that was like the immediate kind of thought. And and not just me. I mean, that was kind of everyone, family, friends, other riders. And then uh, I got home, I could barely even move my leg. 
And I thought, okay, well, I have an MBA. I, you know, my, my father runs a construction business and in Vegas, maybe, maybe I could kind of, you know, we can partner and I use his license. I can do some development projects here in California. I was doing some real estate investment anyway. Um, that never <laughs> happened. Like I just never got in gear to do that. Then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll invest in some franchises. So I started investigating franchises. One was like a Hawaiian ice one. I think at the time, women, those women's fitness franchises were popular then. And then another one, dude, I almost, I almost, I almost got a tanning salon. Okay. So I know this is a podcast, but just, just, just so, so people who haven't seen me before, I'm already tan, right? I have like the most natural tan. So as a black, black American guy, like how ironic would that be to own a tanning salon? <laughs> tanning salon. Anyways, none of that stuff just seemed to stick. Um, and so, I wanted to heal and I wanted to heal faster. And I also did not want to finish my racing career like that. Personally, I personally said, okay, well, I still want to race again. And if it's not possible for me to race again, then I'll stop. But I don't want to just like have an accident take me out. I don't want this injury to just take me out. Uh, at least right now. I at least want to try to get back up to speed. And then if it's not possible, okay, fine. Um, and also too, it just, it just was a better reason to get well. It was a better reason to heal having this bigger kind of meta goal of, of becoming as fast as I was before I finished, right. Becoming as, as competitive as I was before I, or before I got hurt, excuse me. So that was that. I mean, I was, I was probably pedaling a bike in three months, a road bike. Um, I was, back at the track in probably six months. And then I was racing in eight months. Um, and it was tough because I was not, I was quick. Um, I was fast, but here's the thing. And it's funny. It's interesting because we talk about our goals, right? We talk about setting the bar. Sometimes we set our bars too low. Right. And so it's like, it's kind of odd to say like, you know, I want to be as fast as, it's not odd. It's actually very common. I want to be as good as I was before I got hurt. But the problem, I think I actually was as good as I was before I got hurt. I might've even been better because I'd taken so much care of myself and like really kept track of things, but everyone else got better. You see what I'm saying? So the bar, my bar was at what I thought was high, but it was ultimately too low because I was as good as I was before I got hurt. The issue was everyone else had nine or 10 months of getting better than they were before I got hurt. So, um, so I struggled with that because my, I was inconsistent and there were some health, um, I don't want to say health things, but one leg ended up being shorter and then the compensation. So, so all that kind of stuff, like just adapting to my new body configuration was, you know, all those little kind of, you talk about little shifts making a big, big difference, but those little differences, you know, affected, affected how I came out of the gate, affected how I delivered the power, affected how, you know, all that stuff. So, um, and, and you, I don't know that how you could plan for that. So it was very in, I had a pretty tumultuous time coming back. because it was, I'd make some finals and some I was kind of out. So it was just inconsistent, uh, just struggling a bit. And the sport was changing on top of that. I, I am the old guy. So when Pan Am games came in 2007, I said, all right, well, um, yes, bars high, like 
Like it, it, it's not just enough to go. Um, and it wasn't the Olympics, but it was kind of Olympic like, right. It's pre Olympic. It's sanctioned by the IOC. Um, this could be the last big one. I don't know if I'll get to the Olympics. I'm in school. I'm, you know, I'm doing all this. I'm a dad, all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, the decision was to, to win. And, and, and the settling, the settling would have been on, you know, it would have been silver or bronze, but the decision was to win. And I got to tell you, even I remember being there that whole week and it was in Rio, just being in the village and tra- like, I mean, just, just the thought of even like settling for second or third, which is rare. Cause I don't have, normally if I get, if, if you get top three for me, I'm like, okay, cool. That's great. That's like a, cause I'm all about consistency. But like in that moment, in that week, it was just like, like it still didn't sit well with me. Like it just, you know, and I would just like literally just shake it out, shake that thought out of my head, like a dog getting out of the water, like shaking their water, like shaking the water off their, <laughs> their fur. Cause I just didn't, like, cause I wanted to win. Like it was, there was just no way around it. Right. Like I couldn't avoid what I wanted. I couldn't avoid the fact that, you know, at least at the time it felt like it needed to happen. Like everything, I just couldn't avoid any of that. This podcast is brought to you by Penji. Penji is an unlimited graphic service that connects you with the top 2% of graphic designers in the world. Get the creative output of an internal design team without the overhead cost. Receive custom design projects from logos to flyers, from digital print, and even UI UX. I know because I've used them. They're perfect for, for graphic design service if you're the person that's either doing all the graphic design yourself or maybe you have an internal team that's just too busy and you need to outsource some of it. I've used them in creating our latest project, a 42-page ebook on productivity for coaches and consultants. It turned out fantastic. I've been very impressed with the overall communication and delivery. And what's great about Penji is that you're not just working with one designer's skill or style. Your team's skills can be treated like a design buffet. You can request a logo, custom illustrations, and even a website design all under one plan. This is because I need that level of flexibility and it's hard to find that by hiring a freelancer online. And not to mention the longer you work with Penji, the more they learn about your style and the brands you work with. Because you're a listener of Humanly Possible, the podcast, you get 15% off your first month. The process is simple. Before you sign up, enter the code H2H15. That's H number 2H15. And once you're in, submit your brief for the first project. I recommend submitting clear details so your brief is totally understandable and add visual examples so the team can see your style and knows exactly what you're looking for. Need a few edits? You can make revisions directly on the platform. Projects are always delivered in under 48 hours. And overall, I was super impressed with the process that it ended up giving me more time throughout my day. I felt confident that Penji was going to get it right and I didn't have to micromanage. So head over to penji.co and use the code H2H15 today for a better way to outsource your graphic design. Again, that's penji.co and use the code H2H15. What was, do you remember the moment or the reason uh, or the, the thing that was pulling you in most about this time versus every other time? Um, what do you mean by pulling me in? To win, to be the number one, to, to... Oh, because it had been, so it had been a while since I got a win, let alone a big win, right? And here I am, you know, the clock's ticking, right? I'm, I'm in the process of getting my doctorate. Um, 
my, my future is somewhat uncertain around racing and sponsorship. I am getting older. The sport is changing. Like, and it's happening rapidly, right? It's like, it's like when your gas needle come, gets on. For some reason, the gas needle moves quicker when it's at a quarter of a tank than three quarters of a tank. So that's kind of where we were or where I at least felt I was. So that's, that's what I think was pulling me in. And I just, um, and I also knew, so here's the other thing at the time, the current group of riders were undervaluing this event because the world championships was actually like a week or two later. And so like, Oh no, I'm, I'm focusing on the world championships or I'm doing this. So, so some people like, uh, I wasn't even the first choice to go. I was like in the top 10. And so they went down the list and, a couple guys chose not to go and I'm like, I'm in like, and, and then, you know, because of the group of people there were at the time, some guys just couldn't get their paperwork in order to go to Brazil at that time. Cause I think you needed a visa and a this and a that. So there was a little bit more paperwork and I'm, I'm really surprisingly very good at paperwork, Brian. Um, so I found myself there. And then the other guy who was supposed to go with me, cause two of us were supposed to represent, he ended up getting hurt and he couldn't go. So I was the only male us uh, BMX rider there. Um, but anyways, yeah, it just, it just was not enough to just be there. And it definitely was not enough to make the finalness and, and even certainly wasn't enough to get set. Like, like winning was like, okay. And, and it was just all of that stuff. Right. It's like, I, I don't say it's obscure because it's the Pan Am games, <laughs> but like that, like in order for it to mean something like first place gold was like that, that was it. Tell me about the, um, as you're you're in the race you're in that final race and you you're was it was it was it complicated was it difficult what was it was it easier with that mindset what made that race winnable for you so, yeah so the day of i mean um everything was like super deliberate that week and i was actually doing homework that week because I, I had a paper to write um but anyways everything was very you were working on your phd at the time yeah yeah and I was actually like writing a paper on kids and sports, high performance sport kids. And interestingly enough, the two kids that I wrote the paper about, one of them is the current Olympic gold medalist and the other one was an alternate on that Olympic team. So that's pretty cool. Um, oh, and that Olympic gold medalist won the Pan Am Games himself uh, two cycles later, I think. So pretty cool how that worked out. But um, everything was super deliberate that week everything. So, and I'm, and I'm glad I actually had the homework because it kind of like brought me back out of, you know, just obsessing about this thing. But, um, the day of the race, you know, warmed up, did all my kind of my, my routine, my, my warm up, my kind of getting in my head space, like making sure, um, I have this very specific warm up that I do, um, where my body's in a certain position and how I spin on the bike and how I kind of breathe and, hold my head and hold my shoulders, everything. Um, yeah. And I wasn't the fastest guy there. My, <laughs> I wasn't. Um, Christian was probably the favorite. Christian Besserina, he's from Argentina. He had moved to, Ve- uh, moved to the United States and been living there for years, but he was the favor. Um, and so, and he was winning all the rounds. And so even during qualifying, I, you know, I was getting like second, third, second, third, semifinal, second. And then the main event, you know, we didn't pick our lanes. They gave us our lanes. So remember, I said, I talked about the belief, right? There's like this belief that you can. And there's also this, even if, even if you don't think you can, the belief that it's possible. Well, I had them both working for me. Um, 
but again, leaving room, just that little bit of an opening, right? That, that somehow, some way you can be the benefactor of, you know, that door opening up. And sure enough, they put Christian in lane one and lane one sucked there because there was a, <laughs> because there was a big rut. There was a big rut before the first jump. And then Ramiro was in two, Mar- Ramiro Marino, another top Argentinian guy, and then myself in three. And so we came out, I had a great start. Christian came out good. And I, I saw him in my peripheral and he was a little bit of a head. And then he, he kind of hit that rut and just kind of like, you know, had a little bit of a slowdown. And I saw that. And then as soon as I landed after that jump, I literally just like, I physically just felt and remember just, just, just pounding on those pedals just a little bit harder than I had normally. Not that I wasn't trying before. Um, yeah, I got in the first turn first and just rode rode my way to a first place. A um, little bit nervous because the, the guy behind me, John Suarez, um, another world-ranked rider from Venezuela, he, he's very sneaky and really, really technically good on the track. So I just had to protect my, protect my, my lead. So pretty conservative lap I rode. Um, but again, that's all you needed, right? And so the only lap I won that day was that lap, the final. And yeah. And that's, that's the story. I mean, it was pretty cool. And, and, you know, and it's pretty cool because the, the director at the time who I used to race, we used to race each other and he became the director of the program for USA Cycling BMX. I remember him saying, he's like, Oh, this is so good. This is so good. He's like, and he was like, now we can get the funding to build the track at the Olympic training center. And then lo and behold, now they have, the, now they have two Olympic tracks, at the Olympic training center. So it's like all this, so it's really cool how, I mean, how all those things kind of, not just for me, I mean, just how those things kind of lined up everything from the paper to the, you know, the funding of the track to this kind of Olympic movement and all that other stuff. But, um, but yeah, I get to, I get to say that, that I'm a Pan Am Games gold medalist. And it's right up there with saying, you know, I earned my master's degree or my doctorate because it's, it's like one of those things they can never take away from, you You know, it's like, it's in the books, um, which is nice, which, and as an athlete, like, you know, you, you do, I mean, because there's plenty of athletes, there's plenty of Hall of Fame athletes with no titles, you know, there's plenty of, and, and in our sport, there's plenty of guys who've won plenty of races with no titles. So I didn't win that many. But I can say I won two. <laughs> and they both came home with, and I came home with hardware for both of them. Right. And those little shifts along the way are, I think is what, is what I think I help people with, um, personally, you know, whether it's in their business or their sport or their life is just kind of reflecting back to them, you know, what, not only what they're saying, but how they're living and what they're doing. And saying, "Hey, what if we, you know, what what could you stop doing right now that might make things a little bit better for you? What can you start doing that might make things a little bit better for you, right?" And then pushing them into those directions to to stop doing those things and start doing those other things. Hey, what are you noticing now, right? And then it's like, and it's just a nothing but a bunch of little shifts. I mean, it, it with race with bikes. There's this. Um, you know, when I teach people, when I was doing seminars, like teaching people how to ride clinics and stuff, I would see people like they would hit a jump and they would put on the brakes because they didn't get that jump perfect. So they couldn't hit the next one. It's like, that's not, that's not what's happening. It's like, it's constant correction. Like you still had enough speed to make the next jump. 
you still had enough to make the next jump. You could have pumped more. You could, you know. So what happens is we get caught up because we didn't do a thing perfectly in the past. And we think we're not set up to do the next thing. It's like, no, like it's, it's constant correction. Like if you watch what you don't see when, when, Le, when, um, Steph Curry hits a three, what you don't see when Tiger Wood takes his swing, what you don't see are the little micro adjustments that they're making to hit that shot. It looks perfect to you, but it ain't. Winning's actually a bit ugly. Actually, you know what I mean? Like there's con like you're constantly correcting yourself. And I think if you really think about moments where you or I or, or just when you're like when you're like in your flow, when you're in that zone, if you really think about those moments, you probably time was probably moving a little bit slower, and you probably remember every single frame of it bit by bit. And the reason why is because you're you're so much in the moment that you can make those micro adjustments or those small shifts along the way. I am so fascinated with this discussion. You're actually making my job so easy um, because every question I'm about to ask you, you've you you're like nailing them. It's like as if you're in my head. Um, but and I could talk to you all day, and I want to make sure that we are uh, staying on time with everybody. So I just want to ask you just kind of like a summary question, a real quick. Yeah, of a quick uh, bottom liner in that where we are today in the pandemic with everything that we're facing, this is the ultimate uh, of maybe it's a big shift to everybody, but also how do we course correct and how are you seeing, uh, what, what, what advice would you give everybody to, to their shifts and where they're at in their leadership and their work and their life and their family to be able to win, win, and and what does that take? Yeah, so there's this concept I have when I work with people. It's called anybody learning to win the day, win the day, right? So, so I, I'm a psychologist. Um, I've worked with people in twelve step, um, but there's a lot you can learn from people in recovery, right? That day by day thing, like it's real. Um, but can we win the day? So what can you do to win the day? Remember, I said everything I did up to that Pan Am Games gold was very deliberate, right? So if you can in your life, and I know things have kind of come to a halt for people, but they came to a stop very quickly, if that makes sense, right? So things happen fast. Boom, we're done. Your business is exposed. Your health is exposed. Things are exposed. What am I going to do? Right? Fair question. But if you can train yourself to slow down and say, what can I do that will actually move the needle? And do those things that day. And, then, and, and by the way, let it rest after those things are done. And then wake up the next day or go to bed before the next day and say, okay, these are the next two or three things that I can do that I'll actually do and focus on them. Then I think everyone will be in a much better place. I mean, if you think about it, even when things get back to normal, I'm using air quotes, whatever that is, I would still hope that that would be a lesson that people take is like, you can literally slow down and go faster, right? So being deliberate in in what you do and focusing on things that actually move the needle, um, big or small, will will put you will nine times out of ten put you in the winner's circle. It won't keep bad things from happening to you, but it'll definitely put you in a position to be more resilient. Jason, where can everybody find you? Where can they find me? They can find me on Instagram at real Dr. J Rich. That's at real Dr. J Rich, or my website. That's drjasonrichardson.com. That's drjasonrichardson.com. 
And if you drop me a message, I will actually answer you. In true H-Tage style, he's going to answer you back. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.